everyone, welcome to Zonan Canada. I'm your host, Jesse Betteridge. So in this episode, we are going to talk about the manga market in Canada. Uh, joining me is a very special guest, a uh, a rare Canadian who actually the North American anime manga industry, uh, specifically for the manga publisher, Seven Seas Entertainment. It's uh, Lisa Patillo. Hey, thanks for having me on. No problem. Uh, really happy to, to talk with you today. And yeah, like, you're, you're definitely one of the few Canadians who are, who are in the industry. Do you really know anyone else? Actually, uh, a lot more than you think. Yeah? Um, since a lot of the uh, manga industry, and actually not just manga, and um, comics and arts in general in North America, uh, works off freelance, you actually have people working um, from around the world. And there's actually a number of Canadians, at least I know that uh, we hire, um, for all sorts of jobs that uh, live here. In fact, it's a strange coincidence just how many people worked for Seven Seas on occasion that live here in the same city as me, over in Halifax, Nova Scotia, before I started working for them. Oh, wow. So, you know, I'd say more than you think. Yeah, every- on, the, on the down low, it's, it's freelance. People don't really, you know, you can be anywhere. That makes just- sense. Uh, it's interesting how much opportunity there, there, there is in that. I mean, we all, we, we talk about how much the, how much of a bust the manga industry went through back in the, the mid 2000s when, you know, the so-called bubble burst and Tokyo Pop went down in flames. But, uh, I guess Seven Seas at least is one of those companies that seems to have really risen from the ashes and, and benefited. Yeah, numbers wise, I mean, I know Seven Seas actually weathered it pretty well. Um, I mean, we'll get into it more detail, but I'm like, the bubble burst, but I think some publishers actually came out stronger for it. Uh, leveled, leveled things out. That's definitely the the flow that we see with these kind of things a lot, especially with a an industry like manga. So again, before you got involved with the the actual industry with a with a professional in a professional capacity, uh, you you read a blog back in the the mid two thousands up or I guess up to early uh, the early twenty tens as well called Curiosity. It's a uh, one of the few Canadian blogs that was uh you know had a lot of notoriety and focused a lot on on manga. Um, can you tell us a bit about that and how that kind of came together and uh, and played out over the years? Yeah, I mean, uh, Curiosity was a site that I started technically back in 2004, um, but at the time it was just a place that I would put, you know, random fan art, and it was just a miscellaneous website with my own personal fan art, fan fiction links to things I thought were interesting. Um, but around that time, I was really getting into manga. Um, I mean, I'd been reading it in comics for a long while, but with the internet becoming more of a thing, I was starting to really follow it um, as an industry um, because even back then, scanlations weren't the thing they are today. Um, a lot of people were reading manga for the first time in print, um, buying it legally here. So that was the channels I was following. Um, and so I started following a lot more blogs and websites about it. And that's what Curiosity started forming into. Uh, and then in about 2007, that's what Curiosity became full-time. I posted manga reviews, news about what was licensed, um, you know, any interesting tidbits, um, and also anything specifically anime and manga related for Canadians, because there just wasn't that much out there um, that focused on the similar, but at the same time, pretty different anime and mar- uh, manga world for Canadians. What, what defined that, uh, that distinction for you? Uh, a lot of it was availability. Um, I mean, you get a lot of books, uh, manga specifically, released at the same time, but the price in Canada was generally a lot higher, especially back then. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, when I first started buying manga, I was paying $34 a book for, like, a flipped Fushigi Yugi volume. Um, and usually they come out a week or so later than the States. And you don't, you didn't have places like writestuff.com back then that you could order from. Even Amazon wasn't as big. 
you had big bookstores like Chapters. I think it's called Indigo, the rest of Canada. Um, it's Chapters here, uh, Indigo in other parts, but depends what region you're in. Yeah, so Chapters slash Indigo um, didn't have as big a manga section as you would hear people talking about going to a Borders or a Barnes and Noble. Yeah, I, I think they, um, for, from my experience at least over here, they they seem to lag behind the U.S. in terms of jumping on um, the the big like, Tokyo pop boom in uh, the early 2000s by I think a good two years. Yeah, and I think a part of that was because also in Canada we've always had anime sprinkled on TV. We've had some times better than others, but we never had what the U.S. had with Toonami and their really huge hits. I mean, we had big ones, you know, Pokemon, Sailor Moon, Dragon Ball Z, those all hit big. Mm-hmm. Um, but they weren't really, a, the mainstream audience didn't really see those as, as anime, as manga, as Japanese properties. Unlike the States where they had things like Cowboy Bebop and, you know, all the things that played on, on their Toonami block for years that we just never got here. And I think that's why, aside from population, the U.S. kind of took to manga and anime availability faster than Canada did. Yeah, it definitely, I think it came off as more of a risk for bookstores at that point. And, um, it, it was the, you know, the, the, the pivotal moment was when that market transitioned into bookstores, uh, with Tokyo Pop's real authentic manga line, um, back around, again, around 2000, 2001. I remember I first caught wind that, um, that chapters had had, had was starting to get stuff in and I, I rushed down there on my bike as fast as I could. Uh, I think all they had was like a single volume of Chobits and a single volume of GTO, and I snatched both of them up. Um, and I just saw it kind of growing and growing from there. But it was always still kind of scattershot for for the longest time. Um, yeah, I mean, I bought most of my manga for years, well, I still do, um, from local comic book shops here in Halifax. Yeah. Um, thankfully, they were always pretty quick to to get that in because that was what the younger audience was reading. Um, Excluding, you know, you always have some that are like, I don't want any of that Japanese stuff in here. But, but well, for the so, most so part, so many comic book stores are like that. They, and, and oftentimes I find it's not because of a lack of demand. It's just people who run the comic book personally have no interest in manga. I think it's that, and I also think a lot of comic book stores. I mean, again, I can't emphasize enough how lucky I am to have like Strange Adventures here in Halifax. Has always been ridiculously phenomenally supportive of anyone who wants to read comics. Um, but I. I find, especially when I travel and I go looking in comic shops for, you know, out-of-print manga and things to fill in holes in my collection, is it seems to me they're less disinterested in the content and more disinterested in wanting to associate and serve the people who are into it, mm-hmm. um, which is a lot of, you know, teenage girls, which comic shops are not well-known for accommodating, um, or younger men who don't want to sit down and play Magic the Gathering or read the newest Batman they want, the new Naruto, and... A lot of comic book short, no, not just comic shop owners. That's you know not fair to say just them, but a lot of people look down on different audiences. And it, and it's so weird because I mean so, so much of that kind of gatekeeping audience is so fixated on American comics um, and kind of puts that on a pedestal compared to everything else. When when you look at the vast size of the manga industry in Japan or even the um, the comic industry in in France and Belgium, it's like what's the the American comic industry is like like pathetically small. Oh, yeah, it's a very small industry compared to many other countries in the world. Um, like, people think that because of movies and stuff now, the comics are mainstream here, but they're really not. If you look at the, the population in North America, Canada and the U.S., compared to the people actually reading comics of any kind on a regular basis, it's it's not mainstream. Um, but 
when that's all you're kind of engrossed in is just DC and Marvel and the occasional image comic, that's your whole comic world. So it, it probably feels very large. Yeah, and before the the transition to bookstores, um, I mean, th- those price differences were absolutely brutal back then too. Uh, before things started picking up in in the the chapters in Indigo. Oh yeah, pick up any old old like original, especially like the Viz books. Yeah. Larger trim size, they're flipped. I mean, you know, not dissing them at the time, it was phenomenal. You even got them, but you look at the prices pre-printed on the back, and it's you know eight or nine dollars difference just for buying in Canada. Direct market has a few quirks with the stuff like that. Yeah, and I was buying manga before I was old enough to get a job, so that was quite a bit of allowance to save up for one book. So uh, you treasured you treasured a bookshelf that had more than a few volumes of manga on it. Ah, oh man, those were the... T- <laughs> no, not really. But those, but <laughs> those were also the days where you could buy manga in the single issues. That was also interesting, chapter for chapter, just like American comics. I bought a lot of those. Yeah, it's so weird looking back on it, how they they how so many publishers try to twist manga around to work in that format it uh and and how many people like stood by it for so long like i i, fi- I find the whole idea of paying i guess now almost five or six dollars for what is essentially a 30 page pamphlet yeah i know it's when you look at the value i find that you get for like manga um it's pretty hard to compare i buy i still buy a lot of comics but you know i i get an issue and i'm done in five minutes and i've paid you know if I pay double that price, I'm going to get an hour's worth out of a volume of manga, maybe. So, quite a difference. Just going back to that uh, that difference in market scale, manga is, you know, there, there's all, it's always been an interesting challenge to try and cut that down into something that is approachable for a Western audience, just because when you go to Japan, it's completely ubiquitous. Um, when you were running Curiosity, like, how did you, like, obviously it's, even at that point, when the, the manga industry was kind of, was, was, burgeoning it was still such a big thing to try and keep track of like running a single website about all the manga coming out um is is kind seems kind of befuddling how did you approach it what did you what what did you focus on what did you think what did you find was the most important thing to fixate on when uh trying to 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 follow this whole uh this whole industry uh well the biggest thing i started with was reviews um and that stayed consistent Mm -hmm. throughout the first half of curiosity's life going a little more to news um but it was because I was reading a lot of reviews at the time because there was so much coming out. Um, and when buying books in the store was your first exposure to most of this content, reviews were the best way for me to see if I was interested in something aside from a cover. Um, so, yeah, I you know, put a review or two up every day um, for years of just you know books that I had read that I bought myself and what I thought about them. Uh, and, yeah, so for me at the time, that was the biggest thing. I was basically trying to mimic the sites that I went to on a regular basis. Uh, and then after that, it was mostly just writing news about what books were being licensed. And at the time, social media wasn't the beast it is today. Um, so you, you didn't kind of get fed that information from Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr every second. Um, so if you didn't go to publishers' websites... Might be unlikely you'd know what was coming. Um, so I'd post news like that. Um, and for a while, I, I had the uh, the habit of uh, trolling, as, they, as I was called. Um, Amazon websites, you'd often see what was licensed before it was announced. Ah, yes. So now working in the industry, I can tell people, I don't blame you for doing it, but it does cause some problems. <laughs> um, <laughs> good to know, good but, to know. Um, but, yeah, so that was kind of my focus. It was literally just I was... 
you know, I was writing for me, pretty much. I was like, what do I want? Well, I want to know what I can buy, and I want to know what's worth buying right now. Yeah, the site certainly had a, a personal touch to it. Um, personally, I, like, I've, I've found the manga industry very difficult to follow. Like, so much stuff gets released now, um, and usually I find out that something is licensed long after it's actually come out. Uh, I, I, it, it kind of blindsides me sometimes, like, wow, that, that, that actually got licensed and released? That's, that's crazy. At least the nice part about that is you can go out and get it right away. Yeah, exactly. Um, one of the, the more frustrating parts of working in the North American manga industry, or I should say North American publishing industry in general, um, is because of the vast amount of content coming out, you're required to schedule things very far in advance um, and release that information publicly very far in advance, uh, which can be very frustrating when you're translating something as opposed to writing it from scratch. Because you know at the time you're announcing something, you probably have it ready to go. The book's been out in Japan for years, but you still have to wait. You can't publish it right away. Um, so when you, a lot of people who follow manga news, um, and it was the same when I was publishing about it years ago, um, you would hear, oh, we've licensed such and such a title. You can get it in 13 months from now. Um, and that upsets a lot of people, but that's it's one of the shackles of, of publishing in North America. You know, Publishers don't have a choice. They would love to have everyone find out about something being licensed and then able to buy it that day. That's, uh, that's at least one benefit of kind of not staying connected to manga news 24-7, is you can, you can hear about things once they're already out. Mm-hmm. No waiting. Um, how, how do you find that the, uh, the industry here in North America compares to, say, like in France or, or Germany? I noticed that it almost seems that stuff often comes out faster there or... Um, or, or rather, they they seem to get a lot of stuff that doesn't get uh, released immediately here. Uh, obviously, there's a very different history going on there. But how do you find the market here in in Canada compares to say one of those markets? Um, well, I'm not uh, too well versed in those markets, but as a as a Canadian, I can say that I grew up getting a lot of manga in French as well. Oh yeah, they had a lot of manga published far before we did, um, and you know, I could read French, so that was a really Nice uh, bonus that I could get. Like back in the the early two thousands, that was always that always helped. If you get a lot out, a lot more out there. And that- yeah, and I still buy um, French volumes today. My reading comprehension's not as good as it probably should be, um, but they still get a lot of series that we would probably never get here. And the production values on their books are incredible. Um, and that's part of the same reason that there's so much manga in Japan in the first place. It's when you have a bigger audience of readers. You can afford to take more risks. You can afford to make books fancier um, because you're you're going to make your money back, or you have you can have a certain amount of faith that the audience is there. Um, so at least I can only really you know compare here to to France, but whereas their comic industry is a lot more um, diverse in general, they're not kind of pigeonholed by the whole comics or superheroes thing like we are in North America. Um, they have a lot more readers that are open to all the different genres that. Uh, Japan's comics can offer, and so you get a lot more diversity um, in what they publish that way. Yeah, I've always noticed that the French comics they are they generally actually have sl- uh, like slip covers around them because st- generally when you read manga in Japan they have a a slip cover around the main cover um, and it's a little smaller in size. The French volumes seem to mirror that a little more closely and but and are often if not the same price a little lower in price. Um, uh, whereas uh, doing slipcovers for English manga releases has always been considered cost prohibitive. Um, so it's 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 really interesting how you know the, the those different markets evolved. Yeah, I mean 
Power slips are expensive, but also keep in mind, too, the different sides of countries, mm-hmm. physical size, um, and not just population. Shipping and storing books or any material is very, very expensive. And distributing books around a country as big as um, the U.S. or Canada, you're, you're paying a lot more just for something like that, and that does, uh, that does take a cut. Do you find there's any difference between those markets in how uh, comic artists versus manga mangaka are kind of treated or interpreted and like as celebrity or in terms of notoriety? Uh, you mean between like in Japan versus North he, America? Or North America or in Europe for that matter. Or France, I guess, if, uh, to just to make it easier. Uh, I feel like names are a bit more well known um, over in markets like uh, France. Um, again, I think that stems from the fact that they're just more accustomed to to comics sort of as an art form, whereas I feel like comics in general here are a little more disposable, or these days people see them as just the stepping stone to the next movie franchise. Um, And, you know, there's always been stages of years where people have seen that with manga too, where is it going to be the next big thing, the next Pokemon, or now we've got, you know, Ghost in the Shell coming in theaters. Um, But in terms of the creators, um, I think they are seen very differently. Um, A big part of that is just the way that the industry treats them. In Japan, you can get very well known as a manga artist by name. Um, but, you know, like anyone, you have to have some pretty big titles under your belt for people to, to be a household name, like a Clamp or an Akira Tariyama. Um, but a lot of them are just so overworked. Like, the, the publication schedule of manga in Japan is insane um, compared to here. And uh, most manga artists tend to be the author and the artist, Whereas here, you'd have an author, an artist, and the artist might be penciler, the penciler, the inker, the colorist. Um, and you have someone else who, you know, puts it all in book format and lays it out and letters it. In Japan, a lot of that falls onto one person's lap. And sometimes if they're big enough, they can afford to have assistance. Um, and I think part of what that does is they don't have time to, to kind of market themselves as a, as a person. It's, it's just the work. Um, and I, I find, at least, you know, here in the comic industry, there are a lot of people who will buy books based on who did it, who the author is, who the artist is. But with exception of a few really big name people, even in North America, manga doesn't sell that way. You can get the next series by the creator of Naruto, and you're not even guaranteed it's going to do very well based on that. Mm-hmm. Which I'm sure people in comics industry might find that weird because, I don't know, I just find that the manga artists just aren't seen the same way. There's also the uh, the whole issue of how the copyright works in Japan, with the original creator having a very large amount of control compared to what you find in other countries, too, I think. It, it makes a difference, but again, only for those big enough to, to be a name like that. Most, I think, just, you know, it's their work and that's it. Um, and also, you know, just the, the culture of Japan is different. Um, North America, the U.S. in particular, is a bit more boisterous. You want to put your name out there. You want to have, you know, the 50,000 Twitter followers or get invited to a con. Um, in Japan, you're a lot more, I guess you could say humble. Um, you keep to yourself. Um, some of them are like, I just want to make my work, have people love it, and leave me alone. Like, <laughs> either because they don't have time or they're, you know, not comfortable with that. Um, and I just think, yeah, there's a huge just cultural difference, and that reflects in the way that people react to them as well so what do you find uh have been the biggest ways that the manga market has like uh grown in canada over the years i mean we, I, again we talked about the the correction in the mid 2000s with uh the 
basically the destruction of Tokyo Pop, but uh, you know, uh, they're 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 not really gone. Would you say that there has been an like an over? It has grown overall, uh, regardless of that that correction. I would say it has grown overall. Yes, um, I think a big part is because again, you have you know you can. There was a, a slow period for a while there, but now you can go into any chapters or indigo, and you've got the Isle of Manga again. You've got more books than you could, you know, feasibly buy in one go. Um, and also, I think the internet is the biggest thing. Um, even, you know, putting aside scanlations, because that's a, you know, that's the illegal way to read your stuff. But legally, manga in Canada, the internet's made a huge difference because you can buy things from Amazon, from Chapters, or even from RightStuff.com, um, from any company, and and get it sent to your house. You don't need to find the rare comic shop. You don't need to. Um, kind of be trapped at the whims of whatever chapters wants to stock, which is not always everything. Um, and also the growing um, anime streaming is huge. How much you can watch legally right away the same day it comes out. And for the most part, but not all the time, um, Canada gets what the U.S. does. Uh, so that just is a general, you know, huge promotion, building awareness of the properties, which in turn helps the manga. Interesting you bring up simulcasts because one criticism I I or one thought I have on uh the manga industry here is that or whenever you hear the debate about piracy and how people should buy titles to to support the industry here I think one thing that kind of gets overlooked a lot is the fact that um the market here is sort of missing that serialization aspect that you get in Japan where you buy you know, you buy the the manga compilation books, and it ha- and it serializes a whole bunch of titles for an extremely low price. And a lot of people will casually follow titles in there, and then buy the books after when they've already read the material and know that that they like it. Um, do, like, do you do you think that? And uh, when you look at like anime piracy, one of the biggest issues was the fact that people were downloading content, not always because they didn't want to pay for it. Uh, or because they wanted it for free, but because they wanted to keep up with the content as it was coming out in Japan. And I've personally found that the anime industry has adapted to that that demand uh, a little better than the manga industry has. You you do have, of course, Crunchyroll, who is you know trying out simul pubs with a number of like well, well, it, with a number of titles, although it's arguably a very small number of titles compared to the vast amount of manga being released in in Japan. Uh, but then you have that vast almost ubiquity of, of manga you have in Japan obviously makes it a lot diff, a lot more difficult to use that kind of approach um, here. Uh, I don't know. What, what, what are your thoughts on, on digital distribution in that regard? Like how, how palatable is it to, uh, to, to cover that serialization gap through, through digital? Well, I think um, first and foremost, there's way too much manga to ever have any sort of um, system like they do in, in Japan. And also, we have nowhere near the audience to, to support it. Um, here, you know, a best-selling manga title in print could print a couple thousand copies. In Japan, a single volume would sell millions. Um, and it's the same when you have the circulation of something like Shonen Jump and all the different Shonen Sundays and, you know, dozens and dozens of manga magazines that come out in Japan. And they can because they can print them very cheap. They don't have to ship them very far because Japan is not very physically large and you have a huge audience to support them. And the more people that buy something, the cheaper a book becomes. Um, and it's the same with North America. You find that the more people are buying something, the cheaper the books become. Um, and we're in a pretty good state for that right now. Um, digitally, people just aren't as interested in reading books digitally as they are in print. You see that in all 
mediums, fiction, nonfiction. Uh, digital's growing, but it's not, still can't come close to print. Um, and that's just, you know, I think the tactile difference. People who like to read generally prefer to have a physical copy, um, and then there's a collecting aspect. Whereas anime, like TV and movies, is something that people see as a bit more disposable, um, and the experience isn't different. I mean, you can go to the store and buy a Blu-ray and pop it in your DVD player, but chances are it's going to look the same as watching it on Netflix in high def. Uh, so it's it's the different the different medium works in a different way. Uh, and also with manga, it's expensive to, to simulpub because you have to not only pay for the material, get the material, but you have to pay a translator, you have to pay a cleanup artist, you you know you have to letter it, you have to lay it out. Um, I'm not saying that subtitling anime is easier, but there are a few less steps involved um, to get it out. And there isn't. And although we have so much anime now, I can't keep up every season, not even close. It's still shadows, and like there's nothing in comparison to how many manga you'd have to publish to even be putting out a fraction of what Japan gets every week. So some publishers are, are, are trying. You know, you've got several simul pubs coming out. The Viz Media Shonen Jump still blows my mind what a good value that is. Like how they can even put that out for so cheap. Like 25, 20, what do we pay? Like $26 as Canadians a year for a new issue of Shonen Jump every week? Like that's... It's pretty I, crazy, yeah. Yeah, I still don't know how they do that. Um, but they, they took a chance and tackled it the way that you do in Japan, where you get a lot of content for cheap. And you use that to attract a very large market that makes up for the cheapness. Um, and I don't think currently, in summary of my long rant, that there is enough of an audience to support that for a lot of other manga. I, I have found, at least from my perspective with digital a lot of the time, the, perspe- the, the approach seems to be still treating it as an alternative to like the printed, completed final volume rather than uh, something to release in chapters, even if it's not simultaneously with Japan, um, still release it uh, before the release of the the final collected volume. Um, I think I think a lot of the publishers are starting to shift in either both or a different direction, but that that still seems to be uh, uh, a, you know an, an issue I see coming up a lot with uh, with the way di- digital is being treated. Yeah, and the one of the big issues there, um, I know every publisher has the same concern. Well, one you have there are a lot of licensors or publishers. Or I should say artists in Japan who don't want their stuff digitally. Um, and even Japan, like, is only recently embracing digital manga over there. I mean, it's exploded, but they held off for a very long time because it just wasn't what people wanted. It wasn't traditional. And there are a lot of artists who still don't want their stuff digitally. So even if a manga publisher wanted to, maybe they got told no. Maybe they got told not right now. Um, and the other issue is you're constantly combating, like, there are way more people who read manga and want, like, uh, I'm not watching anime so much, but read manga legally than people who support it legally. Um, and there's always the concern about splitting the, the ones who do um, have it legally. Like, if you give them it digitally, are they not going to buy it in print? Um, and, and print books are more important in the grand scheme of things, where, as I said, you know, the more it gets bought, the cheaper you can make them. So if you have less people buying a print book, the print books are going to get more expensive. Um, whereas that doesn't change for digital. Um, and that comes down to printing costs. Um, and yeah, so that's and that is the biggest issue here in North America for digital manga um, is you don't want to have the digital sales cut into print because the quantity of buyers for print is a huge dictator of how cheaply you can sell people the books. And nobody wants manga to get really expensive again. 
um, because there's not enough buyers for it. Uh, and I can't speak for all cases, but in many cases, the manga is sold and artists get a royalty. It goes back to what you said about how you know artists get um, they have more, more hold on their copyright, but they get a smaller cut from digital sales. Um, and I can only speak generally from you know working in the industry and, and uh, talking with other publishers, but that's generally the case because the biggest ebook platforms, Kindle, for example, uh, take a very large cut up front um, just to sell their books on the platform. So in turn, creators and publishers both get less from it. Um, so there are a lot of reasons why print is still preferred over digital. So you know, and everyone's trying different things. Every every company is exploring new avenues. What works best? How can we get people what they want as fast as they want it? while still keeping costs low so we're not, you know, needing to charge the customer more and also ensuring that everybody who works on these books gets, you know, gets credited and paid for it. So, so in regards to, um, you know, the issue you brought up a little earlier about the market having to, um, or, or how, having, how serving such a large market across a, a, a or, or serving such a, a relatively small market across a large geographical space obviously influence the, the industry, like, I'm sure many would make the argument that Canada is kind of a drag on the publishing industry as a whole, since we are attached to the American market uh, overall. Like, I mean, realistically speaking, do you think the market would function more effectively if it didn't have to cater to Canada? I don't think it really makes that big a difference. I mean, mo- manga publishers specifically generally all work with distributors um, that publish, that help distribute, you know, millions of other books of all types of content. Um, and, and there are systems in place for putting books out across Canada. Um, I don't think manga is, you know, I don't think Canada negatively affects manga. Um, but I do think that, you know, Canadian uh, market is less valuable um, simply just because our population is so much less. I mean, the entire population of Canada, I think, is smaller than just California. Um, and we have bigger space. So um, not not as much pull here simply because we don't have even the ability to have as big an audience. Um, that's also the reason why you're not going to see as many anime shows in theaters here, unfortunately. Yeah, that's that's been that's been an issue lately. Yeah, so it seems that like no matter how sort of concentrated the market gets, it can only it can only uh, be so valuable in the end. Um, look, looking at at just Canada, how everything's expanded. Um, you know, the manga is interesting because, like, like I sort of alluded to earlier, if you look at Japan or even France to a degree, it's so ubiquitous that you can't even really put a box around it. It's just kind of, it's just kind of everywhere. Um, w- would you say that here in Canada, it has? Do you think it's it's sort of uh, broken through that um, threshold of of ubiquity? Do you think it's become, you know, as mainstream as it's going to get, or fairly mainstream, or do you think it's still? kind of has that box around it. Do you think it still has uh, room to grow and um, become more uh, or, or just kind of expand to, to greater avenues? I think it, it absolutely has room to grow. I think, um, again, where more people will will know uh, an anime and manga is based on the properties that get big. And we haven't really had a huge uh, animated, like an anime that's gotten really big in Canada. Um, and sometimes it's really hard to to make the line between, well, you know, it's huge in the U.S., it must be huge in Canada. Um, I mean, look at something like Attack on Titan. We didn't get that on TV here. Yeah. Um, but we probably won't. We don't really have a channel that, a 
accommodates that kind of content unless you get satellite and then you're you're just getting an American channel. Um, but we do have Netflix, so stuff like that can do really well on Netflix. Um, but what does well on streaming that you know we can watch it on Funimation or Crunchyroll or Netflix doesn't. It's not the same as being on cable. It's not the same as having a Sailor Moon or a Pokemon where you could still probably ask anyone outside now if they'd heard of Pokemon, and they probably have. Um, but they they also probably couldn't tell you that it's, you know, a, a Japanese game that has over 900 animated episodes and all these manga series and all these other series are connected to it because they're also from Japan. Um, you don't have anime on TV that every parent with a child is going to know about. Um, so I think in Canada especially, it's it's definitely not not mainstream broken anymore. It's very much in a box. I, I wrote a letter to CBC telling them they really need to air Attack on Titan late at night. Um, I'm probably crazy, and that probably won't happen, but uh, I think it was worth a shot at least. <laughs> so so you'd say that that being on TV is still more significant in that in like regards to to mainstream visibility than you know online streaming is, despite how much streaming has taken off. Absolutely, because even streaming, um, you know, like look at Crunchyroll. I'm going to use them as an example because they're the top, you know, legal anime streamer. Even then, the only people that are going to use it are people looking for anime. Um, that's very, very different than someone who's going to sit on their couch, watch Game of Thrones, and then right after Game of Thrones, the new episode of Attack on Titan comes on. That is a completely different audience you'd be reaching. Um, and they have that more in the States because they have had the recent uh, resurgence of Toonami and Adult Swim um, that are playing more anime um, for an older audience on television again. Um, and then, you know, you have Disney. They got they bought Yokai Watch because they were kind of trying to get another get their own Pokemon. Um, so, you know, the effort is there. But think of how amazing it would be if, like, YTV and a bout of nostalgia started airing the new dub of Sailor Moon, like they used to way back in the day with the deep dub. Um, or if, you know, even in the States they can't get Dragon Ball Super on TV, how amazing would that be to have here on YTV again? Um, you know, even if you're just kind of feeding off the nostalgia of people our age who grew up with it on TV here, you'd still be exposing it to a huge new market as well. You know, one of the big questions is when, because Dragon Ball Super is being pitched to TV in the States, apparently a number of stations are bidding on it. I guess the big question is, is it going to be like like a sort of a more of a localized kid show when it does hit? I know Teletoon is running Yokai Watch, so it's possible that Dragon Ball Super is treated as more of a kid's property. Uh, it, might have a, it might have a decent shot, uh, shot of actually showing up here. Uh, that's I, I that's a big maybe, though. I don't think it would be treated um, necessarily as a kid's property the same way it was before. It yeah. might get some censoring, and that's that's purely just to, to get it airing at an earlier time. Yeah. Um, but these days, it's just like watching any dub of something. You know, the there's a big enough market of just anime and manga fans that if you cater to them and give them a good, authentic experience, um, they can generally support you. Um, whereas years ago, you had to get a title out there to as many people as possible if you wanted a hit. Um, you know, there wasn't a Netflix of the day. You want to get on cable, you had to play by cable's rules. Um, and that still exists now. If they want to get, you know, a title like Dragon Ball Z on mainstream television, well, absolutely, you want to do that. But there are still a few, you know, rules you have to abide by. Um, but even so, it's like companies will only do what they absolutely have to. They're not going to change a single thing from the original unless they have to do it. 
be alienating too many new fans that way. One thing that you talked about on your site back uh, back when it was active uh, was issues involving importing manga into Canada. Uh, and th- I know there's always been sort of this misconception that Canada has these like horrible, excessively draconian pornography laws that make it hell for bringing in uh, not just anime porn, but just any anime or manga that is uh, you know erotic or not. Um, which is not really true. The, the, the actual laws we have here, I, I think, are quite clear-cut and, and reasonable. But there, there tends to be issues with customs that 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 have arisen a lot over the years. Um, did did you have anything, any experiences with that, or uh, any anything that you followed about that specifically? Um, well, I mean, I follow. You, you always hear like the the stories. Um, there's great organizations like the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund who help raise money um, to support people who kind of fall victim to these. Um, you know, random searches gone horribly wrong. Um, and, you know, it's like you said, the, the Canadian, you know, pornography laws are not stricter necessarily than the States or anywhere else. Um, in fact, fun fact, a lot of people can pick up most of the hentai and boys love and 18 plus material and manga that they've bought over the last 20 years. They will say printed in Canada because a lot of American printers will not print that material. Yeah. Um, and then you get this ironic situation where it's printed in Canada shipped to the states then you buy it in the states and you're terrified to bring it back over the border to canada a lot of it actually shows up in store shelves here uh, especially yeah. with the bl titles but th- then it always somehow it's been it very frequently runs into problems with uh border guards at uh, in customs and i mean and a big part of that is also you know what specific border guard you get on that day exactly um when you look at how many how many big cases there have been versus how many people cross the border every single second. It's a very, very small number. Um, but yeah, like as, as, you know, lenient as a law could be for something like art, um, being considered pornographic, whether it is or not, um, you know, you're still gonna have, if you get the wrong person who, you know, is just really against something because it's gay. Like there's nothing, there's no sex in it. But the moment they're like, oh, this is like, Japanese and it's about two guys or two girls. Like it's it's porn. It's not appropriate. You're like that's not the law. That's just you. <laughs> um, but it is something you have to watch out for because like you've seen, um, you know, and, there, and I do recommend people. There are some really good uh, breakdowns of these legal trials that people have gone through um, because they got caught with with you know hentai and stuff that people even considered child porn. Um, it really comes down to what is the understanding of the people who are looking at this stuff. A lot of people look at anime manga characters and they think they're um, they're not underage, but they might be drawn in a way that people here who you know aren't used to that art style they don't recognize it you know the nuances as you'd say um, could only see it as as un- underage characters. Because as, as recently as 2013, um, I know uh, the CBSA they they restricted a title called Bonds of Dreams, Bonds of Love from coming across the border, which as far as I can tell is not really you know any any worse than a standard bl title um and you can act, and again it's it's on store shelves at chapters or indigo you can actually buy it but it's been prohibited from being imported in canada and right stuff will not send it out now uh and that's just it's so strange because like the only way that would have happened is if a particular border guard personally felt that one that comics are for children and two that uh that homosexuality is is immoral or should not be depicted in media um, and it's just so screwed up that, that there's like so little oversight at the CBSA that, um, 
that it basically comes down to the the moral judgment of a single border guard uh, as to what comes what, what is allowed in and out or what is and is not allowed in the country. Uh, I I really hope that something is addressed about that in the future at some point, but it's been going on for so long. And and you mentioned uh you know this this does frequently happen to to uh, uh to to gay material a lot of the time, and this. This goes back to like the the late 80s and early 90s with the whole here in Vancouver we have a place called um Little Sisters Bookshop and Emporium and they fought for years because they kept getting their 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 shipments but it almost seems like you know that that kind of bias is now being directed to to a lot of manga titles. Yeah and and a big problem with that and that's it's a very um wide issue that is in no way specific to to manga or comics is that a lot of people think that if you're gay or content is about being gay or same-sex relationships, it has to be sexual. Um, and that is an attitude that is slowly changing. Um, but, you know, a story about two girls dating in high school is not necessarily any more sexual than a story, a romance story about a guy and a girl dating in high school. Um, but one will automatically be seen as sexual. And so you get that issue with a lot of boys' love, even if it's just fluffy, you know, teen-rated they're like, oh no! If they're gay, they must be. There must be a sexual component to this. Um, so ban it. Um, one of my my first trips to the states, the first time I went there, was actually to San Diego Comic Con, uh, quite a few years ago now. God knows it'd be impossible to get a ticket these days. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was down there, and that was at a point in my life where I was buying mm, pretty much every volume of manga that came out. We're talking like dozens, if not a hundred a month. <laughs> like if it was out. That was where my money was going outside of rent. Um, and so I went down to San Diego, stars in my eyes, two empty suitcases, I was ready to go. And I bought, also down there, several hentai titles because you just couldn't get them up here. And from a company at the time called uh, it was Icarus. Yeah. Um, and they had one title by one of my favorite artists at the time. Um, it was an anthology, and it had one story in it where the it was a teacher having sex with a student, older female teacher sex with a young male student. And even I was like, okay, art style-wise, he looks pretty young. They like to remind you ten times over he's in high school, but to an outside eye. And I was terrified. I didn't feel any shame in having it. I didn't care who knew. I still don't. I got a wall of hentai in my boys' love, you know, in my library. Big whoop. But the idea of someone seeing that when I crossed the border and then suddenly thinking, what, that I was some sort of, like, pervert trying to bring in this illegal Japanese porn from America... Like, I had it wrapped in so many bags and buried underneath the most all-ages-appropriate books I could think of, <laughs> underneath the new Legend of Zelda and Pokemon Adventures. Um, because, yeah, even though, you know, I also, being you know a young woman at the time, would face probably less scrutiny than a, than a male my age carrying porn across the border would have been, um, that was still a really scary thought, and I still would have that concern crossing the border. You know, what photos are on my phone? What adorable, you know, fan art did I save that somebody, the wrong person might see and be like, uh-oh, like this person is bringing smut. And it really, it's, I'm not afraid of the system as a whole. It's always, are you going to be the unlucky person who's going to get the wrong crossing guard, the wrong border patrol? Yeah, exactly. That? So, yeah, um, and write stuff. That that surprised me when they, that was a couple of years ago now, I think. Yeah. Um, it was already it got very difficult to order from them because there was like a $150 threshold and then it was a $250 threshold and then you had to pay for shipping and then their shipping was free. But, you know, I've gotten dinged almost $150 when it shows up at the door from customs fees. Um, 
and now, honestly, I don't order from Right Stuff anymore at all because I used to order, you know, hentai and boys love from them because you couldn't find it here. And they don't ship that across the border anymore. Too many close calls. I assume someone came after them for shipping that material. Yeah, the, the thing about Right Stuff, they had that... Um that survey they released recently for Canadian customers. And I, I've always had a similar attitude about um, about Right Stuff because I've been just dinged with customs charges uh, for, for things I brought in before. They have apparently addressed that problem. They they prepay for all the customs stuff now. Um, and I got a shipment from them recently, and I got no... It came very quickly, and I got no dings. So I guess they've, they've improved in that area. But then you still have all those other inherent problems that come from having to, from the, the consumer end, import things from across the border and the shipping costs as well i think they might be doing something about the shipping costs as well maybe maybe something tiered but uh i i, I made sure to tell them in my in my comments that they really need to consider having a, a, a like a, a right stuff anime.ca with a warehouse on this side of the border which would be expensive to run initially but i i, I think it would it's the only real solution and i think it would be a sustainable a sustainable one in the long run at least yeah if i mean like you said, it would be very expensive because we just don't have the population. Yeah. Every single person in Canada could be buying manga from rightstuff.ca, and, and it still would pale in comparison to the potential of the states, just we don't have enough people. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's it's, it's probably not worthwhile to them when Canada is already pretty well serviced by Amazon.ca and Chapters.ca. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a big issue. The, the cost of shipping is huge. I don't know if you ever tried shipping something to the states from here. Our postal system is not cheap. Um, and, you know, not even to bring into the issue of the Canadian dollar, um, which is currently fantastic if you're getting paid in American. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it if, is. But if you're trying to buy anything, even within our country, the cost of everything is going up because it's so expensive to buy from the States. So that's a big issue for them as well. A lot of people from Canada won't buy from Right Stuff because, oh look, it's only two ninety nine until you put it in your cart, and now suddenly it's you know five fourteen or something, depending on what the dollar is that day. So yeah, so, so, something drastic has to happen, but like how you approach it, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Um, okay, so to finish off, uh, any manga titles uh, that that we should be looking at that you you've been into lately or, or would recommend? Um, well, I mean, it's a bit self-serving that I can point out that some that I have worked on uh, for Seven Seas. Either way. Um, but <laughs> I, I do think I would highly recommend people keep an eye on what any publisher is putting out, because I think right now you are starting to see a really big diversity shift that we haven't in a while, maybe since the boom um, in the early 2000s, which even then you were kind of seeing a lot of the same thing. Um, I think you can find a lot more unique gems right now. Um, and they absolutely need support because uh, different publishers are taking risks on different things, but if it doesn't sell well, they can't publish more like it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess I'll give a one pimp or something we just put out, um, called Please Tell Me Galgo-chan. Ah, uh, yes, that's, uh... Which, there was an anime that came out for it, short episodes. There sure um, was. <laughs> and I think it's absolutely fantastic. It's, we put it out in full color, nice and big trim, just came out last week. Um, and I keep joking, I'm like, well, half joking, I'm like, I wish I had this, um, in school, in, like, sex ed class, um, because it's just a story about, uh, high school students talking about, oh, there's my puppy being angry, um, talking very frankly about questions that teenagers actually talk about that are considered taboo or too embarrassing, you know, breast sizes, buying bras, or, you know, guys' sexual performance, and it's all very innocent, it's just 
as if you were sitting in a circle with your friends in school and being like, hey, guys, what do you think about this? Um, and I, I think it's just fantastic. I think that it's great in that way. It's an interesting title because I think it, I think it was like a seinen title targeted at adult men in Japan. And like it seemed the intention was to sort of or, or commercially, it, it seems to be like directed towards, you know, men who want to see girls talk about stuff like that. But it almost the actual material comes all the way back around. And seems like it would be much more appealing for, you know, again, girls who are actually in high school or fall into that, into, into yeah. that age bracket and re- would relate to that kind of, kind of discussion and, and, uh, and stuff. Oh, absolutely. I think yeah. it's, you know, you read it and I'm like, man, I would have been way too embarrassed to ask this when I was in high school, but I really wanted to know. <laughs> but I, you know, wouldn't ask my mom this or my friends this. Um, so it's, it's kind of really fun and refreshing to read it in a manga. Um, at the same time, I also read it and I'm like, Man, if this is targeted at uh, young men, um, I hope they're reading it because they could learn a lot. <laughs> they are definitely not taught about women or themselves in school. So, yeah, I look at it as it's entertaining. Um, it's gorgeous to look at it because it's in full color. But it's also, I would call it sex educational. So <laughs> It's a great series. I recommend it too. And I'll, uh, I, I may pick it up. Uh, well, Lisa, thanks a lot for coming on despite our drastic time zone difference. I'm glad we were able to make this work. Oh, someone who now works with people, you know, from California to Tokyo. Time difference. You make it work. (laughs) Such is the world we live in. All right. Thanks a lot. No problem. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Zon in Canada. The theme song is by Ultra Klystron, which you can purchase as part of his album Packet Flood at ultraklystron.com. You can reach me through Twitter at Zon Canada or email zonincanada at gmail.com. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes or on your podcast app of choice. And as always, please recommend this show to anyone you think might be interested. See you again.